Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. The war. The chronicles buzzed with reports of this great king, prostrate, half-naked, and bleeding as he was whipped in the harshest manner. Far away from Canterbury on the morning after King Henry's penance, William the Lion was resting, his helmet by his side as he ate breakfast. The Scottish king had renewed his attacks on the northern castles he had been promised in return for his complicity in the rebellion. Wark had withstood fierce blows with picks and sea-giants, an assault with catapults, and an attempt to burn it down. William had sent forces against Carlisle and Prudhoe, also without success. As he breakfasted, he contemplated his next move, an attack on the formidable polygonal shell of the castle at Annick. Then disaster struck. A band of Yorkshire knights who had been tracking the Scots from Prudhoe to Annick launched a surprise attack. A fierce battle broke out in which all the Scottish knights were either killed or captured. William the Lion was among those taken prisoner. It was late at night, and Henry was in bed at Canterbury when he had the news of William's capture at Annick, brought by an exhausted messenger who had flogged his horses non-stop from the north to be first with the news. Brimming with joy, the king leapt out of his bed and roused all his barons to tell them the incredible news, thanking God and the martyr Thomas for his good fortune. With one fortunate event, the heart was ripped out of the rebellion. With only the slightest military effort, Henry now consolidated his power in England, vanquishing his enemies in the Midlands and East Anglia. Those who were not subdued by force had surrendered to the old king by the end of July. On August 8, 1174, Henry was back in Barfleur. He had been away for less than a month. During that time, Louis, Henry the Young King, and Philip of Flanders had broken into Norman territory and besieged Rouen. Henry had gambled that he would be able to smash his way to a rapid victory in England before the citizens of Rouen gave in. The gamble had been rewarded. Now confident of victory, he gathered another force, made up of fierce Welsh mercenaries as well as his trusted Brabanters. The French soon dropped their siege. Shortly afterward, Louis VII sued for peace. "'Peace was restored after the kingdom's shipwreck,' wrote Henry's treasurer Richard Fitz Nigel. "'The most powerful men who conspired learned that it is difficult or impossible to snatch the club from the hand of Hercules.' Henry's skill and good fortune as a general had allowed him to outflank the inferior French king and his own callow sons. He had survived the betrayal of his wife, Eleanor, who was now locked away in an English castle, probably at Salisbury. He could afford to be merciful to his sons when they sued for peace at Mont-Louis in 1174. Having demonstrated his mastery at Mont-Louis, Henry allowed that everyone who had rebelled might have his lands and possessions back in the same state as a fortnight before the rebellion began. He endowed each of his sons with castles or revenue, although not the power that they craved, for Henry lived in justifiable fear of dispersing his lands before his death. The young king received two castles in Normandy and fifteen thousand pounds of revenue from Anjou, 
in return for confirming the wedding grants of border castles that had been made to John. Richard received two mansions in Poitou and half its annual revenues. Geoffrey received half of Brittany's annual revenues, and arrangements were made to formalize his marriage to Constance, the heiress to the duchy. Henry forbade his sons to ask for more than he should choose to give them. Then he sent Richard and Geoffrey off to Poitou and Brittany to stamp out the embers of the rebellion they had stirred up. Henry reserved his real wrath for his wife. Eleanor had abused her position overseeing Richard's fledgling regency in Aquitaine. She had stirred her three eldest sons to rebellion with the same callousness as had her former husband in Paris, and she had rebelled against her sex and status. Eleanor was kept in courteous imprisonment or palace arrest in various southern English castles for the remainder of Henry's reign. She made a few appearances at court as the years passed, but she was never again trusted by Henry, who briefly attempted to secure papal approval for a divorce. This came to nothing, and Eleanor remained an exile from the duchy she loved, a punishment that could not have been more devastating. The last significant rebel with whom Henry had to deal was William the Lion. If Eleanor received the most psychologically cruel treatment for her part in the rebellion, then William was punished with the harshest political terms. On December 1st, 1174, he was forced to agree to the Treaty of Falaise. Sealed at York, this made William a personal liegeman of both Henry II and Henry the Young King, confiscated castles, and ordered the forced allegiance of the Scottish barons, bishops, and clergy to the English crown and church. The Scottish crown was thus subordinated to England's, its dignity formally crushed. But even in Scotland his retribution was limited, for Henry was interested less in revenge than in restoring regular government to his dominions. The peace at Mont-Louis showed Henry at his most astute. It was the high point of his entire reign. Henry Triumphant The Plantagenet court of the mid-1170s was uncommonly magnificent. Henry's victory in the Great War established him as the preeminent ruler in Europe. Louis VII had been roundly defeated. In 1177 the French king would sign a non-aggression pact at Ivry, recognizing that the French and English kings were henceforth to be friends, and that each of us will, to the best of his ability, defend the other in life and limb. Henry's three eldest sons, who would form the next generation of European rulers, had been put to good use across their father's dominions, snuffing out the embers of their own revolt. The King of Scots had acknowledged Henry's supremacy in the humiliating Treaty of Falaise. In 1175 the King of Connaught in Ireland, Rory O'Connor, agreed to the Treaty of Windsor, which confirmed Henry as feudal overlord of most of Ireland, and allowed him two years later to nominate his young son John as High King of the whole country. It seemed that none of Henry's illustrious neighbours could compete with him. Even the Emperor Frederick Barbarossa's fortunes paled by comparison. While the King of England basked in military triumph, the Emperor lost a long-running war with the Lombard League in May 1176, and felt his power in southern Europe seriously diminished. Everyone now looked to the King of England as the greatest ruler in Europe. His court received envoys and ambassadors from all over the Christian world, from Barbarossa, the Emperor of Constantinople, the Archbishop of Reims, the Duke of Savoy, and the Count of Flanders. The Pope sent a legate, Cardinal Huguzon, who remained for several years and attempted to persuade Henry to support a revived European crusading movement by taking the cross, the term used for formally declaring an intention to join the Church's holy war. Even William the Lion was a regular visitor to the royal court and council. Henry was called on to arbitrate disputes between the great lords of southern Europe. There were prestigious offers of marriage for his two younger daughters. His eldest girl, Matilda, was already Duchess of Saxony by virtue of her marriage in 1166 to Henry the Lion. Even greater prospects now beckoned for Matilda's sisters. In 1176 the king's youngest daughter, ten-year-old Joan, was sent to be married to King William II of Sicily. 
The following year, a fourteen-year-old Eleanor was married to Alfonso VIII, King of Castile. The Plantagenet's influence was spreading to every corner of Europe. If his international prestige was at its zenith, Henry also regained his authority in his own lands, especially in England, with astonishing speed and political intelligence. The two great aims of his reign had been to secure the frontiers of his empire and to deepen his authority within the areas he ruled. The Great War had left him largely triumphant over the enemies who had harassed his borders. From 1174 on, his attention turned to the second aim. The eruption of violence in 1173 had left England once again dotted with castles and fortifications occupied by the king's enemies. Just as during King Stephen's reign, these timber or stone garrisons with their fierce ramparts and deep ditches loomed against the skyline, proclaiming the local power of whichever lords kept them. To Henry, castles occupied without his explicit approval were affronts to his rule. According to Roger of Howden, in 1176 Henry took every castle in England into his own hand. He expelled the Castellans, and placed his own men in charge. To stress the fact that this was a demonstration of his supreme public authority rather than a partisan act of revenge, Henry forced even his own most loyal servants, including Richard de Lucy, who had done so much to win the war in England, to give up their castles. Some were destroyed, others redistributed to the great men of the land. The message was unmistakable. The authority by which the barons and bishops of England held castles and arms derived from one source only, the king. Castles and their keepers had always been a vital matter to Henry. Since the Norman invasion, castles had been the ultimate symbols of military authority. Henry spent heavily on them throughout his reign, at least £21,000 on rebuilding castles in England alone. He hastened the general movement in English castle-building away from timber structures and toward more permanent and impregnable stone fortresses. Particularly extensive works were undertaken at Newcastle-upon-Tyne, Nottingham, Orford, Windsor, and Winchester. Improvements made to the stone keeps of castles in Scarborough and Bowes secured the border region with Scotland. The Norman chronicler Robert of Torigny noted that Henry's reign saw castles built not only in Normandy, but also in England, in the Duchy of Aquitaine, in the County of Anjou, in Maine, and Touraine. But the jewel that glittered brightest among all of Henry's castle-building projects was at Dover, at the head of the soaring white cliffs that overlooked the sea approach to England from northwestern France. William the Conqueror had erected an earthen timber fortress on the site of an Iron Age hill fort. Henry's massive reconstruction of his great-grandfather's castle took twelve years to complete, and cost nearly sixty-five hundred pounds, more than two-thirds of the total expenditure on English castles during the final decade of his reign. When Louis the Seventh visited England for the first time, for a four-day expedition to Becket's shrine in August 1179, Dover Castle was the first thing the French king and his companion Philip Count of Flanders saw. Before they left, Henry proudly took his guests on a tour of the building site. Louis was by now a frail fifty-nine-year-old, and Henry must have thoroughly enjoyed guiding his old adversary around the magnificent fortification. An imposing wall overlooked the cliffs and the sea approach, and work was beginning on a massive stone keep that would stand comparison with the great castles of his continental empire, the Angevin fortresses at Loche, Loudon, Montbazon, Montrichard, and Beaugency, and the great Norman works at Falaise, at Caen, and on the border with France. Castle-building was just one part of a wider drive on Henry's part to extend his authority in the 1170s. For besides being a soldier, Henry was an astute, legal-minded politician. Having consolidated his hold on his realm, he embarked on a decade of legal revolution that was to influence the government of England for generations to follow. Henry's greatest piece of legislative work before the Great War had been the Assize of Clarendon, decreed in February 1166, which had brought the entire system of English criminal law beneath overarching royal control. 
Under the Normans, justice had been served by a patchwork of local courts and jurisdictions that answered variously to the king, his barons, and the church. Now, in response to what Henry had seen as the lawlessness of the 1160s, the ultimate responsibility for dealing with robbery, homicide, theft, and the harbouring of criminals was given to royal sheriffs and justices. Baronial and ecclesiastical courts still existed, but they were superseded throughout England by the king's law. A standard procedure for dealing with crime was introduced. Criminals were to be rooted out through juries of presentment, empanelled bodies usually of twelve men who were required to tell the sheriff or justice under oath all the crimes that had been committed in their local communities. The suspects were then tried by the ordeal of water, a ghastly ritual in which the accused was tied up and immersed in a pond, river, or lake. To sink was a sign of innocence, to float a sign of guilt, which would be punished by mutilation, cutting off the convict's right foot, banishment, or death. A guilty man's possessions would revert to the crown. Under the assize of Clarendon, royal sheriffs were awarded the right to investigate crimes regardless of whether they would have to cross into great lords' private jurisdictions. Let there be no one, within his castle or without his castle, who shall forbid the sheriffs to enter into his court or his land, said the assize. This was a truly revolutionary measure, for with it the hand of royal justice reached, or aimed to reach, into every corner of England. The king's law now clearly trumped all other jurisdictions. Legally and judicially Henry had declared himself master of his own realm. In 1176, after the rebellion, this idea was symbolically more important than ever. In January, the Assize of Northampton reissued, modified, and strengthened the laws that had been made a decade earlier at Clarendon. The disruption caused by the Great War had led to increased disorder and crime. Punishments were therefore made harsher. Those sentenced to mutilation would now lose their right hand as well as their right foot. Those who survived the ordeal of water but were still suspected of felonies were banished regardless. To bring justice to the people, Henry and his advisers divided England into six judicial circuits or heirs, and royal judges began a tour of the whole realm, designed both to restore England to order by punishing evildoers and criminals, and to establish the king's law as the final and ultimate form of public authority. Crimes were investigated retrospectively to ensure that the royal justices could punish, in the words of the Assize, all offences, except minor thefts and robberies which were committed in time of war, as of horses, oxen, and lesser things. At the same time as this reform of criminal law, Henry pushed a new royal prerogative in overseeing civil law. When word came back from his justices out on air that land dispossession was as great a problem as crimes against his subjects themselves, Henry decided to introduce a system by which land disputes could be quickly settled by appeal to the royal law. A new legal process known as the Assize of Novel Decisin put this into action. It allowed royal justices to question juries about contested lands. They asked whether a plaintiff had been unjustly deceased, i.e. dispossessed, of a piece of land. If the jurors found that he had, then the justices decided whether it was the defendant in the case who was to blame. The losing party was immersed, penalized with damages, for the loss he had caused. In twelfth-century England, land was power, and arbitrating land disputes between his greatest subjects was a vital function of the king. Now, in theory, all the land in England could be protected, contested, and recovered simply by purchasing a writ from the king's chancery. This would begin an action of novel decision, ultimately managed by the local sheriff. The writ was short and formulaic. The thirteenth-century legal writer Bracton recorded that devising the wording of the writ had caused Henry and his counsellors many sleepless nights. If this was true, and it has the ring of truth about it, and it was with good reason. Royal law and royal officials were now indispensable to the functioning of political landed society, not only when the royal magnates came into contact with the court, but every day at the county level. One of the king's most important roles from the perspective of his barons had been devolved to a simple bureaucratic machine. Disputes could be settled by an application to chancery, rather than by an appeal to the king in person, 
an invaluable development given the vast size of the Plantagenet dominions and Henry's penchant for travelling around them relentlessly and at speed. In 1178, the Royal Council, or Curia Regis, was reorganised. Instead of following the king wherever he went, hearing appeals for justice as they travelled, five members of the Royal Council were appointed to remain at Westminster to hear legal cases full-time. This effectively became England's Supreme Court, and would in time become known as the Court of King's Bench. The legal machinery of England was established, independent of King Henry II, but exercising his full authority, and generating handsome fees for its services as it did so. By 1179 further writs governing land law were available, and yet more of the king's traditional personal legal role had devolved to a chancery mechanism. Darrain presentment established rights over appointments to church benefices, Mort d'Ancester settled disputes over inheritances. The writ de recto, or writ of right, allowed lesser men who believed they had been denied justice by their local lord's private court to appeal to the royal court over his head. This writ had existed for some time, but now it too became formulaic and invested the sheriff as the leading authority for ensuring that justice was done at a county level. All this amounted to the start of a revolution in royal government. So, as Henry settled his dominions after the throes of the Great War, England was slowly transformed. The castles that dotted the landscape, either occupied by the king's servants or licensed by him for their use, became potent symbols of the royal monopoly on military power in general. The assize of arms of 1181 encouraged the development of scutage, payments made by magnates in lieu of supplying troops and military service, which helped further demilitarize the English barons and defray the cost of hiring mercenaries. In the shires of England, the fingers of royal justice were suddenly everywhere. The power of the crown was now firmly rooted in English soil. In February 1182, on the cusp of his forty-ninth birthday, Henry held a great council at Bishop's Waltham in Hampshire, where he announced that he had made his will. It was firmly non-political. He had made bequests to the Knights Templar and Hospitaller, and left five thousand silver marks to the religious houses of England, and one thousand silver marks to those of Anjou. Two hundred gold marks were left to assist with the dowries of poor virgins in Normandy and Anjou. He commanded his four sons, Henry, Geoffrey, Richard, and John, to cause his will to be firmly and inviolably kept, and whoever shall oppose or contravene it, may he incur the indignation and anger of Almighty God, and mine and God's malediction. The will made no provision for Eleanor, who remained under close guard. Henry continued to travel far and wide across his lands, dividing his time mainly between England and Normandy. But in a sense he had completed his mission. The judicial reforms of the 1170s marked the last aggressive phase of his energetic rule. He had been in perpetual motion for more than three decades. It was time to consider his legacy. After 1182, Henry's thoughts were turning to the best way to turn over his vast territories to his sons. It was here that all his decades of triumph would dissolve finally into heartbreak. A World on Fire For all his inventiveness and natural vigour, by the time Henry II approached his fiftieth birthday in 1183, he was feeling old. A busy life had taken its toll. His legs, long bowed from a life in the saddle, now ached constantly. He had been kicked in the thigh by a horse in 1174, and the injury had left him with a wound, perhaps a fractured femur, that never properly healed. It affected his general health and slowed him down. He must have walked with a permanent limp. He still moved incessantly around his territories, but his travels were now interrupted by occasional bouts of illness. Although Henry was pressed by Rome to take up the cross and lead a new crusade to the east, it was becoming clear that he would do no such thing. The world was moving on. King Louis VII had died aged sixty on September 18, 1180, after a long illness that ended in a series of paralyzing strokes. 
Louis's fifteen-year-old son had been crowned co-king a year before his death, and now he succeeded him as Philip II. Suddenly Henry had to negotiate treaties and make policy in consultation with a teenage boy rather than a man a decade older than himself. Philip was younger than all three of Henry's eldest sons, and only a matter of months older than John. Henry seemed like a figure from another time. The whole of France would soon belong to these boys. Henry the young king was to be Philip II's new sparring partner. He too had been crowned as a junior king, and he occasionally styled himself in charters as King of England, Duke of Normandy, and Count of Aquitaine, son of King Henry, while referring to his father as of famous memory. Philip's full accession to the throne only sharpened his hunger. Young Henry's practical experience of ruling was still virtually non-existent. He was twenty-eight years old in February 1183, and despite all his titles and his marriage to a Capetian princess, had very little actual power. In part because of this, he had developed little by way of political intelligence or military skill. He still struck many contemporaries as vain, shallow, and immature, with notions of grandeur, but no understanding of the real business of kingship. The young king devoted most of his time and energy to the tournament field. Along with Philip Count of Flanders and Baldwin Count of Hainaut, he was a regular on the glamorous European sporting circuit. The young king spent exorbitant amounts of money styling himself as a dazzling chivalrous hero. His tournament captain was William Marshall, a man who had been his tutor until 1170, and was developing a reputation as one of the gallant knights in Europe. When Philip II was crowned at Reims in 1179, it was the young king who represented the Plantagenets at the ceremony, carrying the Capetian crown during the procession, and bringing five hundred knights to the celebratory tournament that followed. Yet for all this finery, he knew how little real power he wielded. In frustration, he began to flex his muscles within his father's territories, with results that were embarrassing and almost calamitous. During the late summer of 1182, the young king renewed his demands to his father for what the chronicler Roger of Howden described as some territory where he and his wife might dwell, and from which he might be able to support knights in his service. The implication was that he wished to take formal possession of the Duchy of Normandy. Henry refused. Just as he had in 1173, the young king flew into a humiliated rage and took himself away to the French court to ally himself defiantly with Philip II. It was only with repeated offers of an increased allowance that Henry II coaxed his son back and brought him to a family conference that was held immediately after Christmas. Henry presided over a meeting at Le Mans that included the young king, his two eldest brothers Richard and Geoffrey, and the Duke of Saxony, who had recently been expelled from his duchy along with his wife, Henry's eldest daughter Matilda. Henry's aim at the meeting was to ensure that all three of his elder sons remained reconciled to his plans to divide the Plantagenet dominions for the future. That meant placating his eldest son with some sign of his exalted status, without alienating the younger sons too much. Henry demanded that all the boys give him a solemn oath of their allegiance, before requiring Richard and Geoffrey to do homage to the young king for their respective duchies of Aquitaine and Brittany. Richard refused. As Duke of Aquitaine he owed homage to the King of France, not the King of England, and he had no intention of altering the status quo. He had spent most of the decade since the Great War establishing his preeminence in Aquitaine, honing his fine military brain in the ceaseless effort to stamp down the rebellious vassal lords of his mother's duchy. That task had lately grown far more difficult, thanks to his eldest brother. The young king had been making treacherous overtures to the barons of Aquitaine, insinuating that he could offer them better lordship than Richard, and stirring up rebellion that his brother had to fight hard to keep in check. There was no love lost between Richard, whose education and upbringing under Eleanor's eye had honed the gifts of a naturally brilliant soldier, and his vain and posturing brother. At Le Mans their feud spilled over into bitter argument, and Richard stormed out of the conference, and returned to Aquitaine to fortify his castles. 
The young king sent his wife to safety in Paris, allied himself with Geoffrey, who was described memorably by Gerald of Wales as overflowing with words, soft as oil, able to corrupt two kingdoms with his tongue, of tireless endeavour, a hypocrite in everything, a deceiver and a dissembler, and prepared to attack. Henry II could not stand by as two of his sons made civil war on the other and had little choice but to back Richard. Thus the old king celebrated his fiftieth birthday on March the 5th, 1183, attempting to bring some order to what threatened to be a disastrous battle between the Plantagenet family's younger generation. Meanwhile, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was perhaps the only person who might have been able to effect a resolution, remained under close house arrest in England. The young king's conduct in the short war that ensued was appalling. He negotiated in bad faith with his father, had his servants attacked diplomatic envoys, robbed townspeople, churches, and shrines throughout Aquitaine to pay for his mercenaries, and attempted, without much success, to raise the lords of Aquitaine in a general revolt against Richard's rule. Henry II and Richard hired soldiers and scrambled from town to town, keeping control of a dangerous situation as best they could. Fate, rather than strategy, finally brought hostilities to a close. In early June, shortly after carrying out an attack on a church in Quercy, the young king was struck down with dysentery. After a short and severe illness, he died on June the 11th in the southern town of Martel. Shortly before he died, the young king asked William Marshall, his former tutor and tournament champion, to carry to Jerusalem the crusader's cross that he had recently taken. It was said that he also made a deathbed request that his mother's terms of imprisonment might be loosened. At the end of the month, his body was brought for burial to Rouen. The world was rid of a glib and troublesome young man. The young king had never been allowed to grow up, but he had shown precious few signs of wishing to do so. Even so, his death threw all of his father's carefully laid succession plans into disarray. Once he had recovered from his grief, Henry began to plan a new future. In the autumn of 1183 he told Richard that he should now give up Aquitaine to his youngest brother John. The implication was that Richard should step into the young king's shoes as heir to England, Normandy, and Anjou, and allow John to take over the inheritance of Aquitaine. Richard adamantly refused. Aquitaine was his, and he was as unprepared to hand it over to his youngest brother as he had been to his eldest. By late 1184, Henry realized that his now eldest son was intractable. He let Richard return to Aquitaine, and made preparations to send John to Ireland, to make good on his theoretical title of king. Meanwhile, he gave consideration to a plan to promote Geoffrey to the young king's inheritance, joining Brittany, of which Geoffrey was duke by his marriage to Constance, permanently to the Plantagenet patrimony, and leaving Richard to his own devices in his beloved Aquitaine. Richard would not accept this either. He raised an army and raided Geoffrey's borders. In frustration, Henry snapped. Finally, he brought over from England the only person who he could reasonably say had a better right to Aquitaine than Richard himself. Queen Eleanor, who had been silently imprisoned for many years, was now brought briefly out of captivity to Henry's side, and the old king demanded that Richard surrender his duchy back to his mother. Practically, of course, this meant surrendering Aquitaine to Henry, for although Eleanor was momentarily freed from prison, she remained Henry's captive rather than his wife. Richard, however, was finally persuaded. He handed formal control of Aquitaine to his father, and for the next two years Henry avoided making any firm decisions on the future of his dominions. Yet if the problem had been averted, it was hardly solved. Henry stalled and bided his time, working out questions of border security on the continent that had arisen as a result of the young king's death, but with neither Richard nor Geoffrey installed either as co-king or heir-presumptive, Henry's grip on his succession remained weak. In July 1186, fate intervened once more. In the spirit of disloyalty that was so widely ascribed to him by the chroniclers, Geoffrey had struck up a close friendship with Philip II, anticipating that the day might come when he would need the French king's support against his father or brothers. 
He was in Paris for the summer when he was badly injured in a tournament. On August 19th he died, probably of complications from his wounds. He was buried with great honour in the Cathedral of Notre-Dame in Paris. It was said that King Philip was so wrought by grief that he attempted to throw himself into his friend's open grave. Henry had now lost two adult sons. Although few mourned Geoffrey with the intensity of the French king, Roger of Howden called Geoffrey a son of perdition and a son of iniquity, Henry was now even more troubled than before. He could not countenance the obvious solution, making Richard his sole heir. Henry never seemed to believe that anyone, even the obviously talented Richard, could be his equal and hold together the vast conglomeration of lands he had assembled. Even when the Patriarch of Jerusalem had travelled all the way to England in January 1185 and laid the keys to the Holy City, the Tower of David, and the Holy Sepulchre at Henry's feet, begging him to travel to the east and accept the title of King of Jerusalem, Henry had decided, after consulting his greatest barons, that he was better served defending his dominions in Europe than the Christian possessions under threat from Saladin. It was this dogged refusal to let go that had made Henry such a great ruler, but it would shortly be his undoing. Geoffrey's death brought relations between Henry II and Philip II, who in time was known to his supporters as Philip Augustus, into a new phase. For the first six years of the young French king's reign, their relationship had been cordial. Henry had assisted in making peace between Philip and the Count of Flanders. Philip had enjoyed close friendships with both Henry the young king and Geoffrey. Now, though, the twenty-three-year-old Philip began to chafe at Henry's influence in France. Richard had been engaged to Philip's elder half-sister Alice since 1161. She had been kept at Henry's court for the best part of twenty-five years, but a marriage had never been formalized. Politically, Henry delayed the wedding for a time of his own dominance, at which the dowry extracted from Philip could be maximized, but there were also ugly rumors that Henry had seduced the girl himself. This audiobook is continued on Disc 4. The Plantagenets by Dan Jones Continued Disc 4 From 1186, relations between the Plantagenet and Capetian crowns cooled sharply. Several important border wars broke out. Because Henry would not consent to Richard and Alice's marrying, the Vexin border country between France and Normandy, which was discussed as Alice's dowry, came back under dispute. Philip claimed to be overlord of Brittany, where Geoffrey had left as his heirs two young girls and a baby boy called Arthur. There were mounting disputes in Berry and in the county of Toulouse, the scene of the great showdown between Henry and Louis the Seventh in 1159. It was the first serious period of conflict between the English and French kings since 1173 to 1174. Philip could not match Henry for wealth, experience, or military cunning, but in 1187 he began to explore other ways to discomfit his rival. The most obvious was through his son Richard. There were cracks in the relationship between the former Duke of Aquitaine and his father, into which Philip began to thrust probing fingers. Henry's studious avoidance of settling the succession on Richard and his growing enthusiasm for John suggested that Richard's future role was far from settled. Richard was impatient to leave Europe and join the crusading movement to the east. He could not do so until his status as heir was confirmed. In the summer of 1187, Philip attempted to strike up his third successive friendship with a Plantagenet prince. When Richard visited Paris, the French king plied him with all the charm he could muster. According to Roger of Howden, Philip honoured Richard so highly that every day they ate at the same table and shared the same dishes. At night the bed did not separate them. The king of France loved him as his own soul, and their mutual love was so great that the Lord King of England was stupefied by its vehemence. Roger's comment about Richard and Philip sharing a bed has since been read as a reference to Richard's sexuality. It was not. Rather, it was an acknowledgment of the strong and sudden political friendship struck up between the young King of France and the Plantagenet heir presumptive. 
Philip played on Richard's fears of disinheritance, and may even have suggested that Henry intended for Alice to marry John. It worked. Richard returned from Paris to rejoin his father in Normandy, but as crusading fever gripped Europe, and Richard's dreams of the Holy Land grew stronger, his relationship with his father grew ever more strained. Stoked by Philip's whispers, Richard began to believe, as Gervais of Canterbury put it, that his father wished to defraud him of the succession to the kingdom, in that he intended, as rumour had it, to confer the crown of the kingdom on his younger son John. In November 1188, matters came to a head. War had broken out between Philip and Henry over Berry and Toulouse. At a bad-tempered peace conference held in Bonmoulin, in which Philip and Henry quarrelled so bitterly that they almost came to blows, Richard demanded outright that his father assure him of his succession to the kingdom. Henry said nothing. "'Then I can only take as true what previously seemed incredible,' said Richard, according to Gervais of Canterbury. He knelt before Philip and did homage for Aquitaine and Normandy. It was a final irreparable breach. In January 1189, Henry fell into a lingering sickness, which lasted until Easter. From his sickbed, he sent messages begging Richard to return to his side, but Richard would not be swayed, and instead helped Philip launch border raids against his ailing father. When Henry recovered sufficiently to attend a peace conference at La Ferté-Bernard in early June, it once again broke up amid suspicions, fanned enthusiastically by Philip, that the old king still intended to name John as his heir. Philip and Richard launched a surprise attack on the castle of La Ferté, which they seized along with all the other castles in the area. On June 12th they moved swiftly to attack Henry at his base in Le Mans, the town of his birth fifty-six years before. Le Mans was unprepared for attack. As an emergency measure, the town's defenders set fire to the suburbs to try to stall the invaders. A wind blew up, pushing the fire back toward the town proper, and soon the whole of Le Mans was ablaze. Henry and his attendants retreated rapidly. Then, despite the heat of the summer and Henry's weakened state, they attempted a forced march north into Normandy. As they marched, Henry did what he had never in his long life done before. He gave up. Ten miles from the border fortress of Alençon, he doubled back, sending the bulk of his escort on to Normandy, while he returned to Anjou. After a dangerous journey of two hundred miles through roads and countryside now overrun with Philip's men, Henry arrived before the imposing walls of Chinon Castle, one of the greatest fortresses not only in Anjou, but in all the Plantagenet lands, and one of Henry's favourite residences. By the time he was inside, he was totally drained. He lay in bed for the next fortnight, sickening daily, weakening ever more. By the beginning of July, men had been overrun and Tours had fallen. Henry dragged himself out of bed to meet Philip face to face at Ballon near Tours on July 3rd. As Philip reeled off a long list of demands which amounted to Henry's utter surrender and the confirmation of Richard as his heir in all lands on both sides of the channel, the old king had to be held upright on his horse by his attendants. A hot day broke into a thunderstorm. Henry agreed to all of Philip's terms. Then, too weak to ride back to Chinon, he was carried home by his servants in a litter. Back at Chinon, barely able to stand, Henry sent for a list of all his supporters who had gone over to Richard's side. The first name on the list, according to Gerald of Wales, was that of his favourite son, John. The grief and shock were too much for the old king to bear. He collapsed into his final sickness, hallucinating and raving. In one short moment of clarity, he received Holy Communion at the castle chapel, then on July 6, 1189, he died. Henry's astonishing life ended in misery. He had been betrayed by his wife and every one of his sons, had seen his birthplace reduced to smouldering rubble, and had suffered humiliation at the hands of a Capetian king, more than thirty years his junior. But he had left his indelible stamp on all of France and the British Isles. Until his last years he had mastered every king, duke, and count who had tested him. He was perhaps the most famous man in Christendom, and his fame burned across the ages to follow. 
for Henry II, King of England, Duke of Normandy and Aquitaine, Count of Anjou, Maine and Touraine, and Lord of Ireland, had begun a dynasty that shaped the future of Europe for more than two centuries. King Richard Richard stood over his father's corpse in silence. He looked down at a face marked by nearly half a century of trouble and glory. Henry II had died a miserable death, abandoned and embittered. The last words he had spoken to Richard were a vicious hiss in his ear, as the two men embraced following the humiliating peace at Ballon. God grant that I may not die until I have my revenge on you. But God had granted no such thing. Since 1187, Richard, in alliance with Philip II, had taken much of his royal inheritance, Maine, Touraine, and many of the castles of Anjou, by force of arms. After Henry's death, the rest passed to him by right of law. Henry's corpse now lay in the abbey church of Fontevraud, the great monastic foundation in the hinterland between Anjou and the county of Poitou, the power-base of the Duchy of Aquitaine. As he stood vigil over his father, Richard would have heard his own heart beat in the cool of the nave. The church's arched ceilings and thick, cold columns soared high above him. Silent before his father's still body, this man of action could pause and reflect. As Richard stood at the head of the bier, he betrayed no emotion. He simply looked down at his once restless father's motionless face, then turned on his heel and walked out. An epic reign was over. A new one, his own, had begun. News had reached France in 1187 that Jerusalem had fallen to Muslim forces under Saladin, the fearsome and chivalrous Arab general whose military successes were the talk of the whole world. The whole of Outremer, the general term for the Christian states established in the Middle East after the First Crusade, faced being overrun by his armies. Richard had heard of great atrocities committed in Saladin's name, the brutal butchery of holy knights, the execution of great soldiers, including Reynaud of Châtillon, who had been slashed with a sword by Saladin himself before he was beheaded. He would have known of the Christian army's disastrous defeat on July 4th in the Battle of Hattin, in which Frankish soldiers had been slain in their thousands amid burning scrubland, their parched tongues cracking as they succumbed to the lethal attacks of Muslim archers. He would have been told of the misery of poor Christians sold into slavery in North Africa, but most of all he was troubled by the loss of the true cross, the most holy relic in the kingdom of Jerusalem, which had been paraded at the head of every Christian army until it was captured by Saladin's armies at Hattin. The Third Crusade appealed to Richard both as a soldier of Christ and as a Plantagenet prince. Richard shared the abhorrence of the infidel felt by every Christian who joined the crusading movement, but he was also aware that Sybil, the Queen of Jerusalem, was a cousin, descended from Fulk V of Anjou, his father's grandfather. Sybil's husband, Guy de Lusignan, was a Plantagenet vassal. Crusading was therefore both a spiritual business and a family matter. Richard was the first nobleman north of the Alps to take the cross in the autumn of 1187. His departure for the Holy Land had been delayed almost two years by his quarrels with his father. Dearly as he would have loved to have led the European charge, that honour had fallen to his brother-in-law William II, King of Sicily, who had scrambled fifty ships and hundreds of knights as soon as the news of Jerusalem's fall had reached him. The elderly Frederick Barbarossa also sent troops to Outremer in 1188, his armies beginning their long march overland by way of the Danube. It was on this mission that Barbarossa died, drowned while bathing in a river. Richard could hardly bear to wait any longer, but he had two sorely pressing issues to settle before he could sew to his clothes a white cloth cross, denoting a crusader of the English kingdom, French crusaders wore red, and set off for the east. The first was his inheritance, the second his relationship with Philip II. The two issues were closely entwined. Richard was crowned on Sunday, September 13, 1189, in Westminster Abbey. 
It was only the second time since the Norman conquest that a king had been succeeded relatively smoothly by his chosen son. Crowds turned out to glimpse a man of whom they would have seen almost nothing in the thirty-two years of his life. They were greeted by a tall, elegant figure with reddish-blond hair and long limbs, grander than his father, but with the same weather-beaten features earned by a life spent in the saddle. It would have been easy to imagine that this was the start of a glorious new age. Richard processed to Westminster behind ranks of bishops and abbots, barons, knights, and the solemn officers of England. His favoured lay nobles bore great golden swords and ceremonial sceptres before him. The clergy were resplendent in purple copes and white robes. At the head of the procession was a great cross, and the abbey was lit with the bright flicker of candles. The rich, sickly smell of incense filled the early autumn air, and left a trail behind the procession as it approached the abbey's inner chamber. Inside the abbey church, solemn hymns boomed. Richard walked up to the altar, watched on all sides by the greatest holy lords and magnificent barons of England. Perhaps the proudest of them all was Eleanor of Aquitaine. To see Richard crowned King of England represented the apogee of his mother's ambition, fulfilling as it did a famous prophecy of Merlin, "'The eagle of the broken covenant will rejoice in her third nesting.' Immediately on Henry's death her beloved son had released her from captivity and restored the lands and revenues that had been taken from her as punishment for the rebellion of 1173. Even before he had arrived in England, Richard had sent a command that his mother, now aged sixty-six, should occupy a preeminent place in English government. She had spent the weeks preceding the coronation travelling around the country, holding court, and extracting oaths of allegiance from the great and good of the realm. Before the altar Richard made three oaths. He swore on the Gospels and the relics of many saints that he would bear peace and honour and reverence toward God, the Holy Church and its ministers, that he would administer justice to the people, and that he would abolish bad laws and customs in favour of good. As he stood stripped to his breeches and with his undershirt unsewn at his right shoulder, wearing sandals woven from golden cloth, this pious soldier must have reflected with special reverence on the first of his oaths. He was being anointed as God's hammer. Richard held the sceptre in his right hand and the royal rod in his left, while Baldwin, Archbishop of Canterbury, anointed him with holy oil on his head, shoulders, and sword-bearing right arm. He was dressed in a consecrated linen cloth, cope, tunic, and dalmatic, the liturgical tunic with wide sleeves that billowed around his arms. Then he was armed with the weapons of the Almighty. Baldwin gave him a sword with which he was to chastise those who did wrong to the church, and two of his earls strapped to his feet golden spurs from the royal treasure. Finally, when he had been cloaked, Richard was led up to the altar and publicly warned by the archbishop of the awesome responsibility of his kingship. Impatient, he answered that he quite understood. He grabbed the crown from its place on the altar, thrust it into Baldwin's hands, and motioned for the archbishop to place it on his head. And so, wrote the chronicler Roger of Howden, the crowned king was led to his throne. England, like the rest of Christendom, was gripped by crusading fever. Preachers toured Europe, holding large recruitment rallies on holy festival days, enlisting the faithful in their thousands, with the promise of remission of sins and eternal life for those who fell on campaign. It was no coincidence that areas known for their military character received especially close attention. Archbishop Baldwin made a grand tour of Wales, enlisting three thousand fierce Welsh soldiers, known for their devastating skill with the bow and lance. The thirteenth-century biographer of the great chivalrous knight William Marshall recorded the king's preparations. King Richard prepared, during his stay in England, a great fleet of ships to take him to the Holy Land. There were many fine ships fortified with towers, and magnificently equipped and manned by such worthy crews that they had no fear about putting up a stout defence against any galleys or hostile forces. 
Richard shipped so much silver and gold, so many furs of miniver and grey squirrel, so much plate, so many splendid and expensive garments and arms of every kind, that no man who had seen them could have easily listed them one by one. There were no stores wanting. There were flitches of bacon, wines, wheat, flour, and ship's biscuit in abundance. There was pepper, cumin, wax, and spices and electuaries of the very best available. There were many other drinks and jellies and syrup, bows, crossbows and bolts, sharp-pointed and swift-flying. Richard spent around fourteen thousand pounds in a single year from September 1189, ordering vast stockpiles of goods, fourteen thousand cured pig carcasses, sixty thousand horseshoes, huge numbers of cheeses and beans, thousands upon thousands of arrows. The mass of provisions and supplies required was paid for through a parallel exploitation of every conceivable source of royal revenue. Before his death, Henry II had raised the enormous sum of one hundred thousand pounds through the Saladin tithe, a tax of ten percent on all movable goods, enforced by threat of excommunication and collected by Templar and Hospitaller knights. But one hundred thousand pounds were only the beginning for Richard. He looked at the empire he had inherited, and saw revenue streams where his father had not. Henry had generally balanced the profits that could be derived from the sale of office and royal favour against the need to offer stable government by competent royal servants. Richard was never so keenly bureaucratic. As Roger of Howden noted, he put up for sale all he had— offices, lordships, earldoms, sheriffdoms, castles, towns, lands, everything. He did not sell his land so recklessly as to jeopardize its governance, but he sold it nevertheless. It was said that Richard joked he would sell London if he could find a buyer. As England hummed with activity, Richard attended to politics. He met Philip II at Nonancourt after Christmas in 1189, and thrashed out a mutual defence pact. The French king was also committed to the crusade, but leaving Europe leaderless would demand a good deal of mutual trust. Richard and Philip swore not to attack each other's lands, to protect the goods of all crusaders, and to act in good faith toward each other. Their barons swore to keep the peace. But mutual suspicions smouldered. The two kings had seen enough of each other during Henry II's reign to know the limits of good faith. The most difficult problem Richard faced in leaving his kingdom was what to do with his twenty-two-year-old brother John. Known as Jean Santerre, or John Lackland, during their father's reign, John was now Lord of Ireland, and had been promised four thousand pounds of land in England. Richard fulfilled the promise. John was given a Norman title, Count of Mortain, and awarded the earldoms of Derby, Nottingham, Cornwall, Devon, Somerset, and Dorset, numerous castles in the Midlands, and marriage to Isabel of Gloucester, heiress to Bristol, Glamorgan, and Newport. This was a massive power block, with which John could easily threaten to destabilize government. Richard had never trusted his younger brother, and when making peace with his father, he had tried to insist that John should accompany him on crusade. Now he vacillated, first banning John from England outright, and then relenting, probably on the advice of his mother. There was no easy way to solve the problem of John. Leaving him with much land but no official power was the only solution he could muster. Richard appointed a team of loyalists to govern in his absence. Eleanor was tasked initially with keeping a maternal eye on her youngest son. Administration in England was split between Hugh de Puisat, Bishop of Durham, and William Longchamp, Bishop of Ely, whose jurisdictions were divided along the line of the River Humber. They were given clear instructions as to the government of the country, but must have been apprehensive. Henry II might have shown that a Plantagenet king could successfully spend more time out of England than inside it, but he had never been farther away than the southern coast of France. Finally, with his armies mustered and provisioned and a huge fleet set to meet him in Marseille at the end of July 1190, Richard met Philip II in Burgundy. They swore an oath to share whatever plunder and gain they made equally. On July 4th, the two kings set off for Jerusalem, accompanied by their gigantic armies. 
At Lyon they split paths. The French king's contingent headed for Genoa, where a fleet was to be hired. Richard's men headed for Marseille. Ever mindful of his own romantic myth, Richard carried a sword that was purported to be Excalibur, King Arthur's legendary blade. He meant to put it to good use. Hero of the East In the midwinter of early 1191, Eleanor of Aquitaine and her young charge moved slowly through the freezing alpine passes. They had been on the road for weeks. In the nights they slept in monasteries, and during the days they picked their way slowly through the steep countryside. They were carried in litters and travelled with a train of servants, but luxury on so difficult a journey was by its nature hard to come by. These were royal travellers, but the road ahead was full of hardship. They were heading over the mountains, down toward the plains of Lombardy, and on to Pisa. Eleanor of Aquitaine had collected the girl, eighteen-year-old Berengaria of Navarre, from her family in the newly constructed castle palace of Otile near Pamplona, which towered over the baking plains of Navarre in northern Spain. She was taking Berengaria to meet her son Richard in order that they might be married. She had found a bride recorded by most chroniclers as more wise than beautiful, but with an honest nature. The girl's epic journey had been planned for several years, and it must have required much persuasion from Richard and his diplomats to persuade Sancho VI to entrust his young daughter to a long and dangerous journey through many rival kingdoms and difficult terrain in pursuit of a king heading for